Welcome to the Project Unchained podcast, where my special guests and I help you break free from the chains that hold you back from life's greatest experiences. The goal of this podcast is to educate people on self-care modalities that can and will improve your life if you commit to doing them. An effective self-care regimen is the single most important thing that you can do for yourself to have a more extraordinary life experience. I'm your host, Ross Leppola, and I've spent the past several years of my life on a journey of healing and self-care after living my first 28 years chained down by my own limiting thoughts and beliefs. Now, I'm here to share what I've learned with you to empower you to break free from the chains that hold you back from your unlimited potential. Let's get unchained. When you were lost in the woods, you were misunderstood by everyone, everyone. You were searching for words, but they came out absurd. And no one heard you, no one heard you speak your We interrupt this show with a brief message. This podcast was created through a strong sense of belonging. A tremendous amount of personal growth has had to occur in order for me to be able to create the Project Unchained podcast, my gift to you. Being vulnerable is scary, and it's not something I've always been able to do. I've had to create confidence in myself and what I believed in. No one was going to do that for me. I had to do that for myself. And guess what? You can too. Creating self-confidence begins with a strong sense of belonging. You create belonging through internal validation. Well, how do you do that, you might ask? I got you. I've created this online self-development course that is designed specifically to help you build a strong sense of belonging within yourself. The ability to internally validate your existence, have the confidence you desire, and grow your self-worth that you never thought possible. The Belonging Blueprint is here to guide you every step of the way. To get more information and to enroll today, you can click the link in the show notes or message me directly. Now back to the show. Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Project Unchained podcast. I'm your host, Ross Leppola. I thank you again for joining me today. I got a fun little episode here. We got special guest Daniel DeBrock on the show. Daniel came to me and started chatting about a few things on behavior change intervention. And that was really striking because behavior is how we interact with the environment and they play on each other. Your environment can set up your behavior, your behavior can set up your environment, blah, blah, back and forth. And so there's that polarity within them that, that matter. And Daniel's specialty is a lot more applying that in fitness and nutrition, but a lot of it really also applies to our minds and our mindset. And those behavioral change interventions can be really beneficial and helpful on this journey, on this path of helping us heal, helping us elevate our consciousness, helping us bring more awareness to our life so that we can do, be, and create the things that really enrich us and bring fulfillment to our lives. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode and get just as much out of it as I did in the conversation with Daniel. Uh, and, you know, hit, always hit me up. Let me know if there's anything that I can do to support you in this path. Let me know what you think of the episode. Uh, reach out. Let's chat. I'm always open. So without further ado, y'all, Daniel DeBrock. Daniel, my friend, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. 
Awesome. Cool. So let's, how about we just start with a little bit of intro. So anybody that's listening, that's not familiar with who you are, uh, we can give them a, a bit of an intro and in, in who Daniel is and what you do and kind of where you come from. Yeah. So, um, I guess, uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit more of an expanded version just because this isn't kind of the typical, uh, powerlifting strength kind of podcast. So, um, I want to say maybe 2009, 2010 or somewhere along those lines. Like I was a competitive boxer and Muay Thai fighter, um, fought for a long time, ended up winning the, the golden gloves championship and, uh, stopped there, got into kind of lifting. I was a chef at the time actually. And then okay. randomly got into coaching as I feel like most people who get into coaching kind of do so in a, in a similar fashion. They just sort of like thrust upon them. And I've been a coach for about, you know, about 10 years now and mm -hmm. about six months or so ago, um, I got into more of an education position. So now I'm the director of education for Kabuki Strength. And that came to be essentially because uh, actually how I got hired with Kabuki initially was I started writing articles for different publications. So it started out with T Nation, then went into Bar Bend, Breaking Muscle, Elite FTS, all these other kind of bigger publications. And I had a really research heavy type writing style. It was very long form typically. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the long form content that I write is behind paid walls and stuff like that. But, right. um, essentially that research base is kind of what got me recognized by Kabuki. They hired me on as a coach. Uh, I started doing a bunch of writing for them on the back end, And then they eventually were like, Hey, you know, you seem to have a pretty good aptitude for this. Why don't you, um, kind of take on this position of director of education curriculum. So now that's kind of what I do. I develop educational programs, uh, primarily for, um, Actually, it's kind of being pretty expansive. So we're getting into working with MLB leagues. We're, we're doing some stuff right now with Travis Mash. We're working on a powerlifting oh, certification, cool. doing some sports nutrition programs. There's a lot of stuff that we're doing behind the scenes that haven't been launched yet. So it's really, really cool. It's a great opportunity to learn and just sort of grow. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of me in a nutshell, I guess, for, for the time being. <laughs> right. So let's let's wind back to the beginning. One of the things that pops up to me right away is you, you talked about uh, Muay Thai fighting and boxing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What, what in your life brought you to, to wanting to fight? I'm always curious about that because especially yeah. in the culture and you see UFC and that's gotten really popular. And um, I always really liked football because it gave me a place to give my aggression out. I could hit somebody as hard mm -hmm. as I wanted to and not get in trouble. And I was really angry right. in my youth. But now as an adult, I'm like, man, I don't want to get punched in the face unless I have to defend <laughs> myself. It just doesn't really right. look like fun. So <laughs> I'm curious, yeah. like what, what is that, what is that experience like that brings you to wanting to fight? So if I'm being a hundred percent transparent is because I didn't want to be a victim anymore. Um, I had a little bit of a different upbringing. And so when we came to Canada, my family was, was struggling quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. and especially to integrate socially into the culture here, it was such a dramatic difference from where we came from. And we, we lived in a pretty bad environment previously. And so, um, essentially everyone was kind of like hyper vigilant in my family, just always kind of looking for threats everywhere. Everything was a threat. You can't really trust anyone. But then at the same time, like I was always very afraid 
just because like, I, you know, I was a kid, right? And so then growing up, I just sort of felt like I was a victim. And there was one particular instance where I got into a fight uh, with this kid and I froze and I was like so ashamed that I had frozen, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, do anything back. And I was like, I never want to have that happen again. And so um, I was like, I need to learn how to fight. I need to learn how to defend myself. I want to be confident. I don't ever want to feel like a victim again. I want to be able to handle myself. And so I started initially with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And then uh, I started doing Muay Thai there at that club as well. And then uh, I started fighting Muay Thai. And then that evolved into just boxing. And then I ended up specializing in boxing later on. <clears throat> and that's where I kind of experienced the most success um, as well. I kind of had a natural aptitude for for striking uh, in particular, and that that was that was actually the big reason was just because I I hated feeling like that victim, you know. So, right, yeah. I think there's there's a lot of ways that I can relate to that. Um, I think for me it was it was football and weightlifting and getting and strength training that helped me have the confidence to kind of stand up for myself. And as I got bigger and stronger, I stopped getting messed with. And I can definitely see that appeal in, in fighting sports and karate mm -hmm. and, and things of that nature. How, how was that going from that place of being a victim to, to finding yourself? What was that kind of transformation? Like, was there anything that stood out to you that, you had you know, like that moment where you're like, Oh man, yeah, I'm ready. If that happens again. Uh, yeah, actually. So for me, it was when I won, uh, the, the title, um, in my head, I sort of had it that, Oh, I, you know, once I win, once I do all this stuff and accomplish these goals, like I'm going to be this guy, and it just wasn't the case. I won and I was elated for, you know, an hour or two hours, something like that. And then afterwards I was just like, Oh man, I don't feel any different. Like I'm still the same scared, you know, insecure kid that I was when I first started. And essentially that made me kind of realize that it was, I'm not going to say that that has no bearing because I, I absolutely gained a lot of confidence. I, you know, I mean, if you've never gotten into the ring before in front of like hundreds or sometimes thousands of people in front of cameras to beat the shit out of the guy in front of you who's trying to kill you, basically. Right. It's a very surreal experience, you know, and it does take a lot of guts to do that. So anyone who gets into a ring or a cage or octagon, whatever, like they, they have, they have a certain amount of guts, you know, and takes a certain amount of courage. And so there's definitely a lot of things that I, that I learned and, and developed, but at the same time, fundamentally, I didn't change as much as I thought I would. And so I realized that there was a lot of stuff going on sort of behind the scenes that needed to be addressed. And, you know, it wasn't until several years later that I was like, oh, you know, I keep trying to get rid of this feeling of fear or insecurity, but the reality is those are normal. Everyone's insecure. Everyone's going to be afraid. Like I've been afraid in every single fight, even now, you know, if, you know, I've been jumped a couple of times in certain situations that were quite dangerous where I was definitely scared, but you start realizing that it doesn't matter. You know, it's like what you're feeling in the moment doesn't matter. The outcome matters and how you behave in the moment matters. And so, you know, it's like, let's, let's say hypothetically you're out with your girlfriend or spouse or whatever you get jumped, but you're able to fend them off and you're able to protect your partner. It doesn't matter if you were scared, 
you, you got the job done, you know? Right. And that's really what matters, not necessarily how you feel. And so I sort of started to realize that there was a big disconnect between the amount of value that most people put in their emotional stat- states and, and reality, you know? And so I think most people put way too much stock in how they feel. And if, if there's like a negative feeling, they're like, oh, you know, I need to, I need to do this. I need to do that. And sometimes it's just like, man, you just need to ignore it a lot of the times, <laughs> you know? And I know that that's kind of like a, a counterintuitive thing. And, you know, it's like anti-therapy or whatever, but in my opinion, it's not, you have to be able to sift through the noise and identify like, what's a signal that's saying, Hey, we need something needs to change. Something's wrong versus just regular emotional, you know, perturbations. I guess. And that right. sort of just comes with, I guess, emotional maturity, I would suspect. I get you. See, and I guess I would look at that slightly differently. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not in disagreeance of the emotional maturity, but in, in that our emotions are there to guide us. So we need to mm-hmm. listen to them, but at the same time, not allow them to drive panic, not allow them to push us around but allow us to connect with like what's behind the emotion, what's really happening, what do we really need? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times we get distracted by the surface and we get distracted by the surface emotion. Fear, what's the need? Your need is to be able to protect your partner in that situation. Um, so equipping yourself with the skills to do so and things like that to me is is part of where that's at. Because I know a lot of times I, I get distracted by – or particular in the past get distracted by those surface level emotions and need to peel that layer back to better connect with myself. Does that make mm-hmm. sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I wasn't quite as clear as I could have been. So for instance, let's say, um, let's say, I guess talking about maybe a training environment, um, you go into the gym and you're feeling sort of unmotivated you know, uh, something happens at work and it really gets you down and you're just like, Oh man, like I'm just really in a bad headspace today. But then you look at it and you're like, okay, well I had four hours of sleep the night before because I have a newborn baby. I'm not very well hydrated. I didn't have a lot to eat because I was so busy, you know? And so you can look at those things and objectively say, Hey, you know what? That's probably having a negative impact on my emotional psychological state. So are these things that I really need to dive into? probably not. It's probably just because of this versus if you have more of like a longer lasting sense of, you know, like, um, I don't know, some sort of existential experience, right. Then it's like, okay, that's definitely something to to dive into, right. Or it's, it's a lot more likely to be something that does need to be addressed. And so that was sort of what I meant when I was saying like, I done like sort of separating or parsing out the details between the noise versus an actual signal. Like there's a lot of times where we have emotional disturbances that don't necessarily require any sort of addressing. They just require you to like stay focused, keep doing what you're doing and move on. And then, yeah. you know, let's say if you get into a fight with your partner and that causes emotional stress, well, it's probably a good idea for you to actually address that and have a conversation. It's maybe difficult. That might not be very fun, <laughs> but you know, it needs to happen unless you guys are just planning on becoming resentful and toxic and eventually breaking up. Right. There you go. I, I totally, I get that now for sure. Um, learning to, what emotions do we need to shake off? What, what moments do we need to shake off and which ones do we really need to pay attention to? Uh, it makes me think of like a dog dogs, I I think provide really good examples, you know, uh, doorbell rings, dog freaks out, barking, 
ready to like go defend the door. And then they realize it's the friendly neighbor and they immediately calm down. And I think a lot of times we lose that ability to shake that off and we'll kind of stew on things rather than be like, ah, you know, this isn't something I really need to work on or, or Mm -hmm. deal with. So I just need to let it go. I had a, I had a bad night's sleep, but I choose to still be in a good attitude or a good mood because I want to make the best of today. Yeah. Or at the very least behave as if you were in a good mood, you know, like, cause sometimes you're just going to feel like crap, but at, at the very least it's like, you know what? I, I should probably stick to my diet. I should probably still be nice to people. I should probably still be fair and reasonable. I should pro, you know, like, so, so it's like, even if you don't feel the greatest, you know, do your best to, to try and improve your mood. But then if you're not able to, then at least try and conduct yourself in a way that suggests that you probably are still in a good mood based on, based on an outsider's perspective of viewing what you're doing. Right. Yep. No, I, I definitely, I don't disagree with that. So as you, as you evolved and you got to that point where you learned to let go of some of those things that you didn't need to sit there and harbor on and, and have those feelings about what, what started to help you create that, that shift and that change and, and elevate that emotional intelligence. <sighs> Man, if, if I'm being honest, this, I, it's still something I struggle with on a regular basis. Um, so especially like rumination and anger uh, are something that are, are very significant for me. So like I, I have PTSD and so there are certain triggers that definitely like just elevate my, my sense of threat. Uh, so I mentioned hypervigilance previously and that's something mm-hmm. that I deal with on a fairly regular basis. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, essentially it's a completely out of whack network, essentially suggesting that every little threat is a massive threat. You're always constantly looking for, for these uh, environmental threats. And so that's something that's been an ongoing struggle. Uh, but one of the big things that I've done to, to kind of assist in that is, you know, regulating my environment. So my day-to-day routines are very, very structured. Um, and, what that really does, it filters out a lot of potentially harmful situations, you know? So for instance, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I don't go to the bar and party. And if other people do, then that's fine. Like you can do whatever you want. But for me, that's not really something that I enjoy doing that much. Right. And it also is kind of dual purpose in the sense that it limits me from being exposed to, to guys who are drunk, who want to pick fights. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm cutting, so I'm quite a bit smaller than I used to be, but I'm still 255. So, you know, whenever I go out, guys will always use me as a measuring stick, you know, like at least two or three times if I go out, guys will come up and either they'll be just sort of like indignant or they'll just like come up and be like, oh man, like you're huge. And they'll kind of like try and touch me and like, or grab my arm or something like that. And I'm like, (laughs) And I'm very introverted and like, I like my, my space. And so, yeah. you know, that could very easily turn into, to a conflict very rapidly, you know, especially right. when people are drunk. So that, that would be one example of a situation where I control my environment and I conduct myself in a way that sort of acknowledges my weaknesses and plays to my strengths. And that gives me time to sort of work through and build up my weaknesses and hopefully turn them into strengths and become more skilled in those areas 
but it's, let's say a little bit more of a graded approach, I guess, you know, so I'm not just thrusting myself into the deep end because I mean, the risk for me is I beat the shit out of someone and I go to jail, (laughs) you know? So it's, 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 it's not exactly a, uh, I I guess, a a balanced trade-off. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense to be aware of those strengths and weaknesses and set your environment up for yourself for success. It makes total sense. I think that's often uh, some things a lot of people miss in setting themselves up for success. Where, where did you kind of like learn that to control your, your environment like that? Was that something that you just stumbled upon or created Um. yourself intuitively? Uh, so a little bit of both, I guess, I, I guess at one point I just realized that, um, and again, this is just speaking for myself, right? So I sort of realized there were certain things that I needed to do in order to have the kind of life that I actually wanted to live in order to progress in my career, have good relationships, all of that stuff. So I need to, I needed to make sure that I distanced myself from certain things and I was able to kind of control to some degree or another the the triggers that would let's say incite unproductive behavior or unproductive habits. Um and that sort of led me to to dig into the literature a little bit. So I I not too long ago, well actually quite a quite a while ago now, but it's not it's not published yet, but I wrote like a, a 17 or 18,000 word uh literature like review on um on eating behavior essentially and everything mm-hmm. that goes into that and a big reason why i wrote that was because a lot of that isn't just isolated to nutrition it's it's sort of relevant to a lot of different aspects of people's lives and so my own my own curiosity sort of led me down this rabbit hole of of research which then got me into kind of writing all these different things and understanding the association between your environment and your behavior, your social relationships, your behavior, uh, past trauma, culture, different perspectives, all these different things and, and behavior. Now this, this paper in particular was around eating behavior, but that was still relevant to me. And I mean, the core concepts are still relevant and sort of permeate into other aspects of, of, you know, human behavior as well. So it was definitely a bit of a journey, and it's something that I continue to learn about. But um, I guess it was catalyzed by my own um, my own experience and understanding that there was a bit of a necessity to to make some adjustments and to have some fail safes in place, and also to understand my behavior better. Because, for instance, if you're um, let let's say you have like some sort of digestive issue, and Every time you eat, um, let's say you're celiac, you know, but you don't know. You eat all these different foods and you're like, oh man, I keep getting GI distress. And then maybe someone even tells you, hey, maybe it's gluten. So you cut out all the foods that you think have gluten. But there's a lot of foods that have gluten, you know, in spices and all these different things, even things that are processed in a similar way. So if you don't know what you have, that can be an incredibly frustrating experience, you're like, man, I'm doing everything. I'm trying all these different diets. I'm eliminating this. I'm eliminating that. I'm eating super healthy, but I still have this major GI distress. What's going on? But then you actually go into a registered dietitian's office and they say, hey, you have celiac disease. Well, now you actually understand what your diagnosis is. And now you can actually attack the problem effectively. 
or at least much more effectively because you're not wasting time and energy on other things that aren't having a natural impact. So you can say, hey, it's, it's gluten. This is an actual issue that I have. I'm going to cut these things out. I'm going to limit my exposure to this as much as possible. And therefore, you can actually start seeing some very productive uh, benefits, right? But without knowing, you end up spinning your wheels. So I think awareness is a really, really big piece. It certainly was for me. Like when I was diagnosed with PTSD, it was sort of like an aha moment. I was like, oh, okay, I understand why I'm responding in this way to these different stimuli, right? And now I can adjust my behavior accordingly. I have an actual plan that I can follow to, to make sure that I can address these issues, uh, become more resilient into different environments, different situations, and, um, and then also just sort of curb any of the, the negative uh, effects that that might bring on. Right. So adhere, not adherence, um, awareness is a really, really big key. And then once you have the awareness, it starts to make a lot of people's experience make a lot more sense. You know, I mean, you kind of working in coaching, I'm sure when you have someone come to you and they're like, Hey, you know, I, I experienced this pain and I don't know what's going on. I've been trying everything. And you're like, Oh, well, I suspect it's because of this. And here's why. And then all of a sudden you can just see the light bulbs going off in their head and they're like, Oh my God, it makes so much sense. And that, that experience is so incredibly helpful because it sort of gives you like a little bit of hope, <laughs> I guess, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, I can actually solve this problem now, you know? Um, and that's, that's very different than looking at it and, and just sort of like throwing your hands in the air and being like, oh, I guess I have PTSD so I can just be a piece of shit all the time. Like two completely different frames of, of mind. Um, when you actually get a diagnosis, I guess, if, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think I kind of rambled on a little bit. Oh, it's all good. That's, that's what we do here a lot on this show is just ramble. Um, all right. And, and where, awareness is critical. Awareness is the agent to change, uh, you know, awareness, mm -hmm. choice, responsibility. Like you have to have all three of those and align with all three of those to, to create the change in a positive way. And in doing that, then I believe that's when you have the ability to create the experiences that you do want to create. Mm -hmm. And like when you, when you first hit me up to, to t chat about the podcast, that was one of the things you talked about was behavior change interventions. And that really piqued my interest a lot because one of the ways that I look at that has helped that's, that sets me up for success is similar to some of the things that you've already talked about in, in that create the structure in the environment that supports the behavior change that I seek. And then that makes the behavior change that much easier instead of if you just don't have the structure involved and you're just like, Oh, I'll just change the behavior and still have all these temptations in front of me and then beat yourself up because you fail because the temptation, like most people are going to fail in that situation. So if we set up the structure that supports the desired behavior change, that really makes a big difference for me. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm curious too, like behavior change interventions we have, like, what is it? How is that defined? What is the, the idea and concepts behind that? That like, if you were to define it? Yeah. So um, off, am I um, right? <laughs> so, so I guess I'll take a step back and, and just first say that like my area where I, I primarily work is in, is in sports science. Right. So in coaching athletes and in nutrition and, and sport, like sports related endeavors. So this is going to start because this is more general. This is kind of branching out into like psychology, which is not my area of expertise. 
So I just kind of want to say that right off the bat, I can share my experience and what I know about the research, but you know, that's just sort of like the, the, the caveat. No, I appreciate Um, that. So when you're looking at behavior change interventions, um, I'll, I'll try and stick to nutrition because I think that's, that's what I'm most familiar with nutrition and training. But a lot of these same principles are going to apply. However, if you have some sort of pathology, if you have some sort of like psychological issue, then there are differences in terms of the clinical approach that you would take. And so that's just something to be aware of. This is talking about individuals who are assumed to be generally healthy, if if that makes sense. Right. So when you're looking at a behavior change intervention, there's a couple aspects uh, that you want to look at. But the biggest thing is going to be adherence. Right. So not just adherence in a short term, but but in the long term. Um, and a great example for this is most people think that we have a weight loss problem. We actually don't have a weight loss problem. It's actually very easy for people to lose weight. And in fact, in the vast majority of interventions, we lose a very substantial amount of weight in, in, in the research. And a substantial amount of weight is quantified by at least losing 10% of your body weight. Sometimes it's 5%, but in most cases, it's around 10% is where, where the you know kind of marker is at. So we're very successful losing weight. That's not the problem. Most people don't have a weight loss problem. They have a weight maintenance problem. And what I mean by that is when you follow these people after two, five, eight years, over 95% either go back to their initial weight or exceed their initial weight prior to the intervention. So one of the thing that that one of the things that that says is it's not necessarily hard to achieve a certain goal, but it is hard to maintain it. So it's it's not necessarily hard to to make a lot of money, you know, if you're if you're an entrepreneur. It is hard to consistently make money month over month, year over year. It's not hard to, you know, necessarily get a girlfriend, but it is very hard to keep a girlfriend and maintain a very high quality and fulfilling relationship. It's not hard to lose weight, but it is hard to keep it off. So all of these things are predicated on adherence and the behavioral structure that you actually implement. So what a lot of this stuff boils down to then is understanding the individual in question. So for instance, if I have someone coming to me who is looking to you know, accomplish a certain goal, you know, and and let's say we're just kind of talking about their nutrition. Well, first I need to understand that individual in their individual context. So I might ask them questions like, Hey, what do you do for work? Um, how is your mood? How is your mental health just in general? Um, what is your previous experience with dieting, with nutrition, with all of these things? Uh, just really get a good understanding of where this individual is, you know, because if they don't have any experience with dieting, well, why am I going to give them macros? Why am I going to give them a really advanced nutrient timing strategy or supplementation protocol? I'm just not. I'm going to start them with where they're at. But in order to do that, I need to understand their individual context. I need to know how much they know about nutrition. I need to know whether they've tried diets and they failed or if they succeeded. If they have succeeded, then why are they seeing me? You know, there's a lot of things you need to understand. And so, again, the initial piece is just around creating awareness. So I'll have people fill out this fairly extensive intake form. And I'll read through it, and then I'll actually book a call, just kind of like this, a video call face-to-face where we can sit down. And then I'm going to ask clarifying questions because a lot of the times someone might write something down, but my interpretation of what they're writing down might be very different what they actually mean. And again, 
even if you're not working with, an, let's say, a coach, even if this is just you and personal development, this is an exercise you can do on your own. These are just, this is just kind of the process that I'm sort of laying out here. So from there, you know, I might ask them about like how many steps they're getting a day, how active they are, what kind of foods they enjoy, what kind of foods they hate, what's their social life like? Um, are, you know, are they going out on, uh, you know, lunch meetings all the time with clients? Are they, you know, constantly going to family reunions where they're having these big dinners, all these things like once I understand the broader context, then I can understand where the problems are. I can identify what the key behaviors that I want them to integrate into their lifestyle are. And I also know the integration strategy, you know, now that might not be a hundred percent, but it's a fairly high resolution picture once you've had that conversation and reviewed all the details. So, um, I guess to kind of put it into context, I'll talk about an actual client that I had. So they'll remain nameless, but essentially this individual struggled to, um, struggle with their weight. They were actually a fairly high level athlete. So, uh, very, very high level, uh, competitive athlete, but their nutrition was absolute garbage. So what I did with them was I said, okay, where's going to be a good starting point. And in the case of nutrition, a lot of the times I like to work in terms of creating a sense of abundance as opposed to restriction. So instead of saying, don't eat this, I'm going to say, I want you to eat this. I don't care what you eat for the rest of your diet, but I want you getting this food in. Now, this is for a couple of reasons. If you think of the diet as kind of a, a finite amount of food that you consume before you're just feeling like absolute trash, like even if you love Pringles and Pop and McDonald's, you can only eat so much of it before you feel like crap, right? right. Because of the food volume. So if I start increasing nutrient-dense foods that are highly palatable, sorry, not highly palatable, nutrient-dense foods that are high satiating and high food volume, independent of any sort of request to ask them to reduce their total caloric load, they're probably going to reduce that caloric load just because they're eating all of this other food, right? But in their heads, they're not dieting. I'm not telling them they can, they need to restrict food. They can eat whatever they want, but I'm just saying, I want you to get X amount of servings of protein per day, you know, or, or with every meal, I want you to get one serving of protein. And I'll quantify what that is for them. Right. And then I wait until they can get really good at that. So I track their behaviors. I don't track the outcomes necessarily, mm -hmm. although yeah. we are tracking the outcomes, but we're not focused on the outcomes. These are behavior based interventions. Right. So I'm looking at how consistently they're executing on the behaviors. And then once they've reached, let's say hypothetically 95% adherence to their, their behaviors, then we progress them to the next stage and then the next stage and then the next stage. And through the entire process, I'm explaining to them, Hey, here's why protein is important. Here's why calories are important. Here's why performance and recovery is assisted by, you know, eating protein. So at every stage, they are learning why we're doing these things. They're not just following orders randomly because they need to know. And then beyond that, they're actually executing. A lot of the times people will say, oh, I know how to do this or I know how to do that. And most of the time, that's actually just not true. If you actually knew how to do something, you would have the result, right? There's a difference between a conceptual knowledge and an actual experiential knowledge, which is one of the reasons why, in my opinion, I say, if you're a weak strength coach, I wouldn't hire you, you know, because it's like, why, why would you hire someone who's, why would you hire a broke financial advisor? Why would you hire a weak strength coach? Why would you hire someone who, who can't produce that same result for themselves? You know, now there's a lot of caveats to that as well that I'll, I can kind of talk about, but just as a general rule, that is, right. A bit of a red flag. 
right? For so sure. um, then once they get to that point, then we start habit stacking, you know, and start building up more and more routines on that. And then they get this instant gratification every day where they look at their calendar and they're like, hey, I'm checking off another day where I did those routines. And they understand the direct correlation between their day-to-day routines and the future outcome that they're looking for. So now it's no longer this disconnected sort of nebulous goal like, hey, I'm trying to lose weight, but I'm trying to lose 30 pounds. It's like every day we check off these boxes, you're eventually going to get there. And they understand that. And so that helps with their adherence as well. But again, that starting point is also contingent on what they're willing to do. Because not everyone's, you know, I'm not going to start everyone off with just, you know, having protein. You have to kind of meet the individual where they're at and do something they're going to do. And this is where the behavior change model by BJ Fogg kind of comes in. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but he's got a really interesting uh, behavior change model that, that he talks about. So if you can imagine an X and Y axis and on either of these axes, there's, um, you know, ability or competency and then motivation. And then we have sort of like a, a little curve line, right? Where if we want to enact certain behaviors, we have to pass that threshold. So, Essentially, what you want to do is you want to have behaviors that are low in ability, so they require a very low-level ability. If I tell you, you know, you have to portion out your meals, you have to weigh everything, you have to track your macros, that does require a fair bit of ability. That requires time, it requires effort, it requires a knowledge of macros, it requires a knowledge of proper portion sizes and preparation and all that stuff. That requires a lot of effort as well. So that's a pretty high ability task. And then if I say... Um, you know, a, a task that requires a lot of motivation as well. Again, these are things that are probably not going to be the best. We want to try and find things that you can do when you're at pretty much your worst. So low motivation, low ability. Those are the goals that we want to focus on. We want to focus on the large uh, impact goals. So what has the highest impact while having the least amount of friction on their current day-to-day life? And we want to prioritize those, those you know, low friction activities that have low ability and low motivation. And that's going to allow you to cross that action, what's called the action threshold, which if you pass that, you're going to be able to do it. So if we were to look at, let's say, a a workout, you know, let's say a 15-minute workout, does that require a lot of ability? No, not much. It's only 15 minutes. But if I get you to do like actual Tabata training or actual high-intensity interval training for 15 minutes, that is going to murder you. So you probably don't actually have the ability to do that. And if you do that once, your motivation to do that again is going to be zero, right? right? So even though it's only a 15-minute workout, you still need to make sure that you understand how motivation and, and ability or competency play into those, into those roles. Even if it seems very simple, it might not be for the individual. Now, this is just talking about exercise, diet, and stuff like that. But I'm sure you can kind of start to see how that starts to play into other aspects of an individual's life. You have to acknowledge your current limitations. That doesn't mean they're always going to be your limitations, but for the time being, they are. And by acknowledging that, now you can do something about it, and you can slowly start to build. It would be the same thing as if you were talking about, let's say, a lifter who wants to squat seven or 800 pounds, and you just loaded up the bar to seven or 800 pounds, and you're like, well, why can't you do it, man? This right. is your goal. It's like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, but behavior works in a similar fashion, where you do need to scale the intervention to their ability, but that doesn't mean their ability is going to remain there. It builds over time and eventually Absolutely. their motivation, their skills, their all that stuff, their self-efficacy is all going to start to climb 
as they become more skilled and experienced. No, I hear that for sure. I like how a lot of that sounds. And while I've never consumed any, any educational stuff on like behavioral change intervention, all that makes a ton of sense and very much correlates to where and how I found success in my own like mental health journey. And anytime that I focus on my outcome, I get frustrated with not being there. But when I'm focused on the behavior or the small wins, the small things that I can do each day to try and push me towards that outcome and the motivation, everything is higher and I feel more successful and that fuels the motivation and gives me the next ability. And that pushes me towards that outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love it. Um, makes complete sense to me. It also makes sense to me in thinking about that with where a lot of people can struggle, like how they start and fail and stop and start and fail and stop and start and fail. And they go through that cycle. And I think a lot of that is because too much at too much at the start rather than starting Mm -hmm. on small. And I really liked how you talk about when you start with somebody that you start with what they can do rather than immediate restriction and, and will do as well. Right. Absolutely. Yep. For mm-hmm. sure. For sure. And cause that makes, I, I think back me pre fatherhood and I'm like, man, why did I, how did I not like get that? Some of that stuff. It's so much simpler and I understand it more now that I'm a father and like the big thing that that we try to do in parenting is to tell Rosalie what she can do and try to never tell her what she can't do. Because when we give her direction and we help support her in that way of what she can do, and there's so much less like friction between us. Mm -hmm. And same thing with this, with this idea, right? You're starting at a place of what you can and are willing to do rather than a place of restriction starting out with that place right. of abundance rather than that place of restriction. That that's amazing. I think that's, that's huge and can be, to me, sounds like a really probably high rate of success for people like that. It, it really is a much, much higher rate of success. Um, for sure. Especially if you're working with someone else on that, you know, that's one of the reasons why if you're working with, let's say a clinician or a, an RD or someone like that, let's say from the nutrition side of things, your success rate goes up exponentially because you actually have that support. And probably at least as important is you have a sense of relatedness. So, um, you know, it is important not to go from zero to a hundred and just go zero to one or even zero to 0.5 in some cases, that's perfectly fine. Right. So long as you continuously do that, you will eventually progress and you will eventually get to your goal, right? Because you're going like this. You're not just kind of going across. So, but the other aspect is, is I guess we can kind of go into like self-determination theory. So self-determination theory is this uh, sort of theory around human behavior that talks about what drives human motivation, right? And, and, and human action sort of in general. So it's, it's a little bit of like a praxeological issue, um, or or discussion, but essentially it talks about how human behavior and human motivation are, are kind of 
predicated on three things essentially. So the first is a sense of autonomy. The next is relatedness. And then um, the third is competency. So when we talk about autonomy, there's controlled and autonomous motivation. Um, controlled motivation would be like, you know, or, or extrinsic or intrinsic. So these are slightly different. So for instance, like if you have to get good grades in school because your parents are kind of like forcing you to, and so you can become a doctor and whatever, that's kind of an extrinsic type of motivation, right? Mm -hmm. And now extrinsic doesn't necessarily mean bad, right? Because there are extrinsic types of motivation that can absolutely be integrated or might already be integrated into your uh, sort of value structure. So for instance, you might not like studying or doing any of these things, but they might par be part of your value structure in the sense that you appreciate hard work, effort, consistency, diligence, seeing things through all of these other values, right? So we can have an extrinsic uh, type of motivation that still is very productive intrinsically. But intrinsic motivation is something like, I really have the desire to do this because it makes me feel fulfilled. I, I love doing it. I love who I am, blah, 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 right? It's more in-depth than that, but it's kind of superficial example. Competency is fairly straightforward. It's, can I do this? Do I feel capable of doing this? You know, so again, uh, when we talk about competency, if we refer back to the nutrition uh, example, you know, do I have the ability to execute this intervention or these actions? Do I have the ability to weigh out all my foods, to, to portion everything, to make sure I'm hitting my macros exactly? Do I, can I stay hydrated? Can I make sure I'm getting my water and, and food at the correct times? Can I make sure I'm hitting my supplements at the right times and the right intervals uh, throughout the day and then throughout the week? Am I making sure that I'm getting all of, you know, it's like all of these things are very difficult or can be very difficult for some. So do I have the ability to execute these things on a consistent basis? And if you're constantly starting and stopping, that really undermines your self-efficacy. Whereas if you're consistently hitting these small behaviors, even if they're small, it builds momentum and it reinforces the, the idea that, hey, maybe I can do these things. Like, And you look back at your check sheet and if you're tracking behaviors, you're like, man, I've been 90% adherent. And on week one, I was only 15% adherent. Three weeks later, I'm 90% adherent. Man, I can really see that. Like, I can objectively see I'm making progress. And then three months later, you can look and say, hey, now, like at the beginning, I was doing nothing. I was not dieting, and I hated it, and I hated everything. Now I'm eating lean proteins five times a day. I'm getting six combined servings of fruits and vegetables per day. I'm getting 7,000 steps, whereas when I first started, I was getting 2,000 steps a day. I'm exercising, doing resistance training like three or four times a week consistently. And it's like, I'm at like 97% adherence for all of those things. Hey, I'm doing pretty damn well. And you start seeing this upward trend. It starts building momentum and confidence. And like, I actually can do this, you know? So that's a really important aspect as well as building up competency. And then the last one is relatedness. So if you're working with a coach or if you're not working with a coach, let's just say, you know, we're just talking about kind of mental health and you're working and you go to someone for support and they just kind of dismiss you. That sort of can alienate you a little bit, right? You can see like, okay, they don't necessarily understand me or they don't respect me or they don't take my problem seriously or 
you know, whatever other sort of interpretation of that you, you might uh, kind of come to. But at the end of the day, it does sort of put a bit of a stress on that relationship um, in the sense that there is a little bit of a loss or there can be a little bit of a loss in terms of that sense of connection. And all of these things are very important. So for instance, one, one thing that I actually was very surprised with when I, when I found that out was um, one of the most important things that determines the success of a relationship or the success of an intervention, like a psychological intervention is the relationship that you have with your therapist independently of anything else. That's, a critical component of, of the success of that intervention. And when I heard that, I was quite shocked. But after thinking about it for a while, you're like, oh, you know what, that, that actually does make sense, right? And so one of the reasons is because, you know, if you're going to be vulnerable with someone, if you're going to talk to someone about whatever problems you might have, and they just sort of scoff at you, that kind of undermines that relationship. You're like, man, I just opened up and they just kind of trampled all over everything I said. I don't know if I want to open up to them again, you know? And also it sort of gives you the idea that they don't understand what you're going through or they don't respect it or, or whatever. So, you know, that component is really important as well. And I mean, even in when I'm coaching, let's say nutrition athletes, it's pretty rare that this will happen, but it has happened before where someone comes to me and they're just dead set on, you know, utilizing a certain approach. And I will talk to them, try and share some education be like, Hey, you know what? I understand that you want to utilize this approach. Let's say just hypothetically like ketogenic diet or something like that, but you're a performance-based athlete. Carbohydrates are incredibly important and, you know, you don't have much experience in dieting. And there is good evidence to show that the more restrictive a diet is, especially initially, uh, the, the less likelihood you have to adhere to it and the higher rate of recidivism uh, you'll, you'll experience. And, you know, after going through all that, they might say, I, no, you know what? I know this is right for me, whatever. I know they're going to fail. So, but instead of fighting them on it, because that's just, that's going to basically just alienate them. I'm going to say, okay, here's the thing. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think we're going to go through it. I think you're going to experience very dramatic success initially. You're going to drop, you know, uh, quite a quite a few pounds of weight, and then after a little while, it's going to become very hard. Then it's going to become harder. Then it's going to become harder. Your performance is going to suffer. Then eventually, you're going to be like, "Man, this really sucks," and you are going to have a massive regression. And then you're going to not not know what to do. That's what I suspect is going to happen because that's what happened in most cases. But I do want to try this because if you think it's going to work for you, let's give it a shot. So I've explained to them, you know, the, the concerns I've explained to them why I'm against it. I've explained everything, but I'm still saying, you know what, let's give it a shot because this is what you want to do. Now they're going to fail almost, almost every time they're going to fail, you know? And so they do it, they fail, but once they failed, now they're like, Oh, he was right. But beyond that, probably more importantly, they're like, he was right, but he still let me do this. He still encouraged autonomy and he understood me and he allowed me to do it. And he worked with me in order to get the desired outcome. He didn't just try and set me up for failure. So he could be like, ha I'm right. You know, he really worked with me. That builds a sense of rapport, connection, trust, all of the above, you know? So now moving forward, pretty much anything I say, they're like, I'm on board because you, you really showed me that you care that you trust me, that you respect my, my feedback, my value. 
uh, sorry, my, my values. And, you know, we're still on the same team. So now they know that I have their best interest in mind and they're just going to like follow me, whatever I say. And I'm going to keep, keep like saying, Hey, here's what I believe that we should do. What do you think? I'm going to keep that, that dialogue going because it is going to be like a communicative process or a collaborative process. But I've really increased that athlete's buy-in now for, for whatever sort of approach that I decide is going to be best suited for them. But I wouldn't have that if I didn't have that aspect of relatedness. So whether you're working with someone else or whether this is just, you know, for you, we need to make sure that we have all of these aspects in, in play. Like, are you competent? And if you say yes, but your life does not reflect that, maybe you're missing something. There's probably something you're missing. You know, do you feel autonomous? Like if you're trying to lose weight, if you're trying to get a certain job, if you're trying to get into med school or whatever, do you actually want those things? Or is that just something that sounds good? You know, you'd like the outcome, but you don't necessarily want to put in all the work, right? And, And do you feel like you have a good social support system? So all of those aspects are incredibly important when we're talking about building up self-efficacy, stacking up those wins, and actually achieving any sort of goal, uh, again, long-term, right? Anyone can do something for a short period of time, but not everyone can do the same boring bullshit day in and day out for 5, 10, 15 years, right? That's that's hard. That's a skill. Right. And it, I, one of the ways I look at stuff like that, too, and developing those skills from a long-term set is – At some point, I believe that the external motivation will only go so far. Right. And at some point, it has to come from within you. It has to be something that you just want to do. And you realize that doing those things are supporting you in the direction that you want to go. Right? Like, there's plenty of times when training sucks, especially for... For me, being a northern person transplanted into Georgia and training in the heat in the summer with no AC, like there are days where it is outright miserable and I am soaked in sweat and gross and like I haven't even started the actual training session yet and I'm just warming up and I'm already that wet and sweaty. But it's something I want to do and I want to do it regardless of the environment because the behavior's there and it's important to me. And one of the things that I, I, I think about with a lot of this stuff is I, I like to look up definitions. And so, like, I think about the definition of behavior, particularly as it, what it means in psychology, and it's the activity of an organism interacting with its environment. And if you look at behaviorism, it's the theory that suggests the environment shapes the human behavior. So there's that kind of interacting loop of behavior and environment, environment and behavior. And it's almost like the chicken and the egg, what comes Mm -hmm. first. And so when I think of a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in behavioral change interventions, behavior change interventions um, is what sets that person up for success? Like you were just talking about with uh, building the self-efficacy, like what are the things that is going to support that person? Is it the the switch in the behavior, the play in the behavior or the change in the environment? Um, I know from a nutrition standpoint for me, I gotta, I gotta not have the temptation around. 
if there's a bag of Doritos, I don't have the discipline to not eat the whole bag of Doritos. I got to just not have the bag of Doritos in the mm-hmm. damn house. So it's just, it's interesting to think about how they play on each other and how you can kind of play with one side of the equation to manipulate the other side of the equation to, to really fuel the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think about how much that stuff is related to like me learning to have a strong sense of self-worth and, and getting away from the places that I was at before. And like, there's, there's a lot of this intertwined into that and, and creating the structure around self-care routine and having things in place that cue me to do those things from a, like a structure standpoint, Uh, being a, being a person who likes structure, similar to like how you were talking about, uh, we use a a program called Asana to track a lot of our tasks for work. Since Mm -hmm. we're all, we're all remote and we all work in different parts. We can't just write it on the whiteboard or whatever. So Asana becomes a really good task tracker for us. And I have in there a lot of my self-care break routines in scheduled into Asana. And I love being able to check it off when I complete it. And I feel really good about, yep, check, did that today. Uh, And that fills that, fills that confidence in the self-care routine. And then I start to feel it. And then as I feel that, that's then again, when it brings it back around to that internal for me, we're like, man, I want to do this. It, there's no more, there's no more forcing the need. Now the behavior is ingrained. It's a habit. I want to do this. Mm hmm. Yeah. When I guess I'll, I'll just to kind of add one thing that you said or add to one thing that you said initially about extrinsic versus internal motivation. Um, extrinsic motivation, again, I, I just want to be clear, like it's, it's not a bad thing, you know, for, for some listeners, because a lot of the times people hear like, oh, you only want to look good so you can attract, let's say a partner or whatever. And it's like, yeah, what's wrong with that? what's wrong with wanting to look good, you know? And, but, but I think like where people sort of misunderstand the the value is it's a short term solution. So for instance, um, let's say hypothetically, you know, a, a wife and a husband, like the wife or the, the husband calls the, the wife fat one time, or she's like, Hey honey, do I look fat? And he's like, yes. And he's never said this before, but he said it this time. That if, if she wants to lose weight, that can be an incredibly powerful motivator. That is extrinsic 100%, but that can be right. an incredibly powerful motivator to start. And that might take her a couple of months. She can ride that out. So, hey, that's fantastic. Ride that out. You know, use the extrinsic motivation when it comes, but just don't rely on it as a long-term source. Now, regardless of where these, you know, the ethics or the politics behind that comment, it does, doesn't, it's not really the point, right? Right. The point is that it can be very useful in the short term to catalyze productive behaviors and at least get the ball rolling, you know, in in various situations. But in terms of the environment and the role and sort of the interplay that that has, it's, it's really interesting because even though the environment is an incredibly important uh, aspect, there comes a point where it actually does start to have diminishing returns. So, or diminishing influence, I'll say. So an example of this might be, let's say, you know, um, you have two gyms, both right across the street from each other. 
One is a hardcore bodybuilding gym filled with IFBB pros. The other is a Planet Fitness, where I believe it's Planet Fitness that has the lunk alarm, and it's like if you're too fit, you can't go there. Some some crazy nonsense right. like that, right? The cultures are completely different in those in those environments. Very much so. Now, they live in the same city. Now, let's say most of their members are in the same basic uh, suburb. Okay, so a lot of the same exposure to different foods, different grocery stores, different whatever. The big, big differences, though, are going to be their immediate social group. So that's still obviously part of your environment. But that's not an accident. You know, you might have started out in the Planet Fitness, but you were drawn over there, right? So you chose to go in there. Now, even if you are this high-level bodybuilder, you can go into Planet Fitness and you can maintain 100% of, of your daily routines, habits, all that stuff. Even though your social circles now change, you can move to another country. Foods are different. Everyone's different. You don't have the same social support. You can still maintain almost all of that because you are a high-level competitor. So there is a point where the environment tends to have substantially less impact on you. It still has a impact, but substantially less. So generally the way I look at it is if you're a novice in whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you're trying to change certain behaviors, but you just really struggle. Consider yourself a novice and treat yourself as a novice when you're developing an intervention. Come up with something very simple, really structure your environment, really like leverage that environment. Like you're saying, you know, where you don't like having those foods in the house. I'm very similar. Like I can go out to restaurants and I don't, I don't get cravings. I don't get any of that stuff. However, if I don't eat before I go out and I'm hungry and then I'm out with all my friends and they're eating, that's a completely different story. Now I start getting cravings. Now I want to actually have those foods, right? So that's like a little thing that I can do to set myself up for being in different environments, right? But I'm the same as you. I don't generally have that stuff at home because it's like I'm probably going to eat it, you know, right. at some point. Or I'm going to go to it. Whereas if it's not there, it's kind of out of mind or out of sight, out of mind. So there's sort of like this this different level of influence an environment plays depending on your experience, depending on the individual, depending on your values, depending on your your history, your culture. Um, your social network, there's, there's all sorts of things that kind of play into it. And so ultimately I think the goal, uh, well, maybe not the goal for everyone, but the goal for, for some people might be to get to that point where you're very resilient and adaptive. So you can be in various environments and you can still just plot along same as usual. There's less perturbations. There's less disruptions to your daily routines. You can adapt to, to pretty much any environment and you can just keep going more or less in the same basic uh, way as you would if you were in this perfect, you know, um, environment that's been, that's been like architect for yourself or constructed for yourself. So that's one aspect of environment that I find a lot of people sort of miss is although it is very important and it plays a, a significant role, that role and the magnitude of effect it's going to have can be very, very different depending on your level of experience and depending on, on the context. So it's not always as big as people claim, but for some people it is huge. Right. And I think the, the thing that I hear, one of the things that I hear is the correlation between extrinsic motivation and environmental changes is that they can both be really impactful and really important in the earlier phases and cha- of change. 
Um, well, always as well, right? Always, but they're, they're just, they're not sustainable a lot of the times. Like right. for, for, intri- for extrinsic motivation, it might not be a sustainable approach, but when you have it, man, go, go hard, even if you are experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and that's, that's kind of what I mean is that they're not necessarily mm-hmm. as sustainable. They're not going to have the same magnitude of effect down the road. And right. so finding ourselves, if we need to be able to create sustainability in say, working towards a specific outcome, a specific goal, uh, creating something specific in our life. Um, we can use those environmental changes. We can use that extrinsic motivation to, to jumpstart us, but we also have to be able to connect and find some other things along the way that continue to elevate us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and for some people, they're not looking to get to that level. They just want to reach, you know, it's like, it's like training just for general strength and, and life versus training to become like an elite strong man or Olympic weightlifter or powerlifter or whatever. Like those are two very different goals, even though they're both going to involve strength training. So some people will never need it. Other people, you know, maybe if you're like very type A and you're like, you're just going really, really deep into one aspect of your life. Maybe that's a really, really important goal. So th- there's always that conversation about an individual's values and the trade-offs that they're willing to make. Um, which I guess kind of brings up another interesting side of things, right? Because I'm sure you've probably heard people say, oh, I'm all in on my goals, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and that always kind of makes me laugh, especially when they're more novice and intermediate because conceptually, I don't even think they understand what they're saying. You know, it's like, if you tell me you're all in, let's just kind of, you know, if we say, stay within the realm of powerlifting or bodybuilding or something like that, and you say, I'm all in. Okay are you willing to die in your thirties or forties? Then you're not all in. Are you willing to take every drug out there? Then you're not all in. Are you willing to sacrifice your relationships, your mental health, your physical health, all this stuff? You're not all in. And I'm not even saying that you should be all in. I'm not even saying that you should, or you need to do that in order to accomplish incredibly high levels of, of, uh, you know, performance. All I'm saying is that can be what all in means. Like, are you willing to be crippled? Maybe if, if, if that's what it takes, you know, to destroy your body, because being a super elite level athlete it certainly doesn't need to cripple you. And if you're doing it properly, almost certainly shouldn't, but there is a risk, right? Right. And, and so like when people say they're all in, they don't really understand what they're getting themselves into. Um, and you know, like you look at the West side guys, those guys were all in, <laughs> Yeah. They were taking whatever drugs they were eating and becoming like morbidly obese to squat those weights and to, to bench that much and all that stuff. It's like, that's what all in looks like. So if you don't want to be all in, then don't do that. But then conversely, I mean, there's plenty of examples of world champions and extremely high level lifters who are not, you know, quote unquote all in, but they still accomplish that pinnacle of performance. So right. there's a sort of disconnect between like, you know, do whatever it takes versus maybe doing whatever it takes isn't necessarily the most effective thing for long-term, you know, maybe it's not, maybe if, if that conflicts with your values, like maybe you probably shouldn't be doing it, you know? And so finding what your values are being honest about them, which can be very difficult sometimes to, to fess up to some of these things, you know, because like, it's hard to say, you know what? I care more about my training than I do my girlfriend. But that's the reality for some people. 
Conversely, it's hard to say, hey, I care more about my girlfriend than I do my career or my training or whatever it might be. And sometimes, depending on your social circle or depending on what your own sort of like views are, it can be very difficult to, to admit like what you actually care about, what your actual values are. You know, not, not just what you're saying, but your actual values, what you live on a daily basis. And, you know, so that, that's a whole nother conversation, I guess, that, that you kind of need to have with yourself or your coach or whoever. Right. So for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. I know that there's definitely been times in my life where I would have been one of those people like, oh yeah, I'm all in whatever it takes. Um, but it's not true. Right. Like yeah. when we, yeah. when we're, when we're really brutally honest with ourselves in a lot of those aspects, like it's not yeah. true now, yeah. like my willingness to endure and embrace the suck of training is pretty friggin' high. But at the same time, like as I've aged, that is reduced and not because I've gotten older, but because my values and priorities in life have shifted and changed. And so for mm-hmm. example, like when I'm feeling beat up from training, and my joints hurt and I can't play with my daughter as hard as I want to, man, training's fucking that that's going down. Like I train less. I train, I don't train as hard. I take a lot of load off playing with my daughter is more important than playing with a squat or benching. Like I've, I've done so much of that. And so I, that value system has changed. And so if mm-hmm. I were to say I'm all in on powerlifting, well, even though I, to some extent, have some connection to powerlifting every day of my life, I'm not all in on those regards. Hmm. And, but even, even still, I, st- I would suspect that your level of dedication and consistency of execution and like how you're executing, like you're executing on the things that really matter. So even though you're not all in, like, let's say this is all in and you're like here, right? That's still really damn good, you know, for sure. Because there's, there's a ton of experience that backs where you invest your energy in, in powerlifting to get the most, like squeeze every little bit out of what you can for what it is that you're investing. Right. I totally agree. And I also Mm -hmm. think from a, from a psychosocial aspect, um, that if I am, feeling shame or guilt for not spending more time with my kid and, or feeling shame and guilt because I'm training too hard and I can't play with my kid because I'm beat up. Like having those feelings and that stress response from those feelings is not going to aid my ability to recover. So I have to create some shifts there to prioritize that recovery uh, for the powerlifting to be good again. So, and potentially even your level of investment in terms of the output that you're putting in per session, right? Like your desire very well may go down for sure. Yep. That's why I've, I've grown to the point where I don't feel bad if I need to drop a session. I don't feel bad that, uh, the other week after my competition in Ireland, I took a week off and explored the country with the family and didn't touch a barbell for over a week. That was probably the longest stretch I've gone in a long time for not touching a barbell. And guess what? Felt good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Daniel, we're, we've been chatting quite a bit, and I want to be mindful of your time. So I want to start wrapping this up. And I always like to end on talking about like uh, a person's go-to self-care tool. Like what is your go-to tool that that keeps you – 
mentally level, like sharp, refined, keeps you in that good headspace where you can you can attack life and create what you want to in life. I guess there's a lot of things. Uh, so breathing meditation for me is incredibly important. I make sure that like, um, I have a very structured routine. So I, mm -hmm. I guess generally structure in my life is probably one of the most important things for me. I need right. structure to, to function, to be productive and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm quite good with that. Uh, and, and the breathing meditation really helps kind of just sort of calm me down, chill me out. So I, I do that you know, in the morning, just before I actually start my work. And then I do that at night, just before I go to bed. It's just a five minute little breathing meditation, but it's very, very helpful. Well, recently I would actually have to say that, uh, prioritizing my social life is becoming probably the most impactful thing for me because I'm very introverted and I'm also the kind of person who just gets lost in work all the time, you know, like 12 hour mm -hmm. work days, six, seven days a week. And then I train really hard and I'm reading and researching the rest of the time. So it's like, it's very easy to just sort of alienate yourself from everyone else. Um, so for me, one of the things that I've noticed actually is really making sure. And it's funny actually, cause my nutrition coach specifically gave me this as homework. He was like, man, you got to get out more with your friends. And we had an actual conversation about this. And so I started doing it and I actually really noticed a huge difference in my performance in just my, my quality of life in general. And so for me now spending time with people I care about with friends and family and, and connecting with others is an incredibly important, like, you know, quote unquote self care tool for me. So I try and make sure that I'm doing two to three times a week out with friends, whether it's just like a walk and we're chilling out or we go out for, you know, and do an activity or something like that. And I try to, but I can really tell my tendency is bad and I just like sometimes I let myself slip and I just don't see anyone throughout the week. But that's probably the most important thing that I'm working on at the moment. I can totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. Working from home, training from home, different things of that nature. I can yeah. really get sucked into that element of being home. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm borderline like introverted, extroverted. Um, <laughs> and so I definitely, my tendency will be to float to the introversion, mm -hmm. but I definitely very much can relate to that idea when I have really like when I prioritize some of that social circle and some of that connection and hanging out with people, it really definitely fills my bucket, especially if I can do that more in a smaller circle than like big, large, crazy events. Mm -hmm. They're big, large, crazy events. And I like almost shut down a little bit and don't talk to anybody and don't get yeah. anything out of it other than that, like wear and tear energetically, but in those small circles. Oh yes, please. What's yours out of curiosity? Uh, what's my, your, your tool, sorry, your tool for self care. I think you said, Oh yeah. Well, so I have a, I have a few, um, like every day, pretty much every day I start with a, uh, like a shocker healing meditation before I eat, drink anything, just as soon as I wake up, go downstairs and, and do that. Um, I journal every day. I read something every day, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's usually like educational, expansive. Um, I do a breathing exercise, a somatic respiratory integration that I've learned from my partner, Vanessa, pretty much every day um, throughout the day and, and do those various things at different points throughout the day. Um, when I... When I worked as an engineer, I would go to work and I would just want to 
put my eight hours in as fast as possible. So I'd, I would just go to work and work. I'd take no breaks and I'd just put it in. And what I didn't really connect with at that time was that was a sign and signal to me that I didn't really want to be an engineer. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. excited to go do that. I wanted to get it done and over with as quickly as possible. Give me my paycheck. I'm out. And when I transitioned to coaching, I'm like, I really like this. I want to take some breaks during the day and not like be so grindy on it. And what I've found is when I take those self-care breaks throughout the day, man, I'm, I'm a fucking laser. Like when I come Mm -hmm. and I sit down, I am focused on what I am doing. If I'm writing training or I'm responding to emails or working on some other thing, like I'm really in it and focused. And then the second I start being distracted, Oh, I need a break. I need to journal. I need to breathe. I need to go for a walk. I need to meditate, do that five, 10 minutes, come back, boom, laser again. And so not only am I like more focused and productive, the quality of work is higher. The quality of my experience is higher. Uh, I'm more centered and grounded. So I I don't have as many like ups and downs from a mood perspective. Uh, Different things of that nature have been a a mix of like the things that are go-to that I do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's fun. I appreciate you asking. Well, I mean, so it's always interesting to hear other people's sort of perspectives on like what they find to be effective and especially at different times in their lives, you know, like I, I used to meditate for a long, long time, like two hours every single morning when I was younger. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's stupid though. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not sustainable. And I really thought that I benefited from it, which I, I did in one respect. But then afterwards, I got away from it. And I kind of was like, oh, I sort of started to like hate on this, uh, the, like the hippie new age stuff and got away from it. And then recently, um, the more I dove into like the research on respiration and, and you know, regulating your, your nervous system type, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is incredibly impactful. And then I got back into it uh, to kind of just help me focus. And, you know, two five-minute sessions takes no time, but it's it's super powerful. And so, like, you know, just seeing that kind of evolve and then other people as well and, and you know, how that changed. I mean, even for you, I suspect your behaviors and sort of routines changed quite a bit when uh, when you got a partner and then also when you had your, your child, right? Like, oh, so it's always sure. interesting to hear other people's uh, sort of little tips and tricks and, and why they find it effective as well. For sure. I I think one of the biggest things that helps me not be as explosive or reactive, a a habit that I'm not proud of that I have exhibited in my life is Mm -hmm. uh, Sam cooking dinner and I drop a spoon and I lose my shit and I cuss the spoon out and yell real loud. Um, And it wasn't so much a problem when I was a bachelor, nobody was around to hear it, but it, it really does bother other people. And then I also look at it. Okay. Well, it bothers other people. Does it support me? No, no, it doesn't support me. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't elevate my experience. All it does is scare other people like, Oh, what's wrong? Why is he yelling? Mm -hmm. And it helps me not be reactive to the emotion. Like if it's frustration, because I dropped a spoon, I made a bunch of, I made a mess that I got to clean up. Like do messes can get cleaned up. It's fine. I don't need to explode over this it's not right. actually a problem just mm-hmm. wipe it up and finish cooking dinner and eat it done <laughs> so if i'm not up on my self-care routine like that's that's generally how it gets expressed as i start uh losing my ability to be more calm 
Yeah, it's almost like you have this, you know, quote unquote, life performance indicator, and you start yep. seeing things slide. You're like, okay, I need, you know, like in training, you're like, oh, I need a deload or something, or I need to pivot. Uh, or, or in this case, it's like, ah, maybe I'm slipping up on some of my routines, maybe I'm taking on too much, whatever it might be, but sort of indicates maybe a check in is, is warranted. Right. Yep. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. For sure. And it like ties into one of the things that I learned from parenting as well that I like to talk with Rosalie about that I also still have to like demonstrate and be and act from. And that is like all emotions are okay. All feelings and emotions are valid. Not all behaviors are acceptable. And like reminding myself of that is like, okay, yeah. Cause I very much value the fact that you know, when I was a kid, I was do as I, I always heard that do as I say, not do as you're told, not how's it go again? Do as I say, it's not like as do I, as I say, not as I do. Yes. Thank you. Jesus, struggling for that. Mm-hmm. Do as I say, not as I do. No, I don't want to parent like that. So if it's something I do, I can't tell her not to do it. I have to just, I have to not do it. Mm-hmm. Period. Um, right. And I, I, I feel a lot better about that and I can tell that she feels better about that too. So more, more rambling for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Daniel, I I appreciate you joining me today. I appreciate some of the insight that you brought to the show with behavior change interventions. It's really good stuff. And I think super applicable to all aspects of life, not just nutrition, but uh, I, I think the nutrition ideas are completely relatable to mental health and self-care and how we can set ourselves up for success across the board of life. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was definitely a great chat. I really appreciate the opportunity and hopefully the listeners got, uh, got a lot out of it. Yes. Uh, likewise, uh, wrapping up, uh, last question. If, uh, anybody wants to get a reach out to you and get in touch with you, how can they find you? Uh, so on every platform that I'm on, it's just Daniel underscore DeBrock. So Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, the best place to reach me though is going to be Instagram. So again, Daniel underscore DeBrock and, uh, I answer all my DMS, but I do get a lot of DMS. So it might take me a day or two to get back to you. Uh, but yeah, always enjoy the chat. So awesome. Cool. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Take care, man. Thanks for joining Project Unchained today. It's important to note that I'm not a doctor nor a licensed therapist. I'm just a guy who is passionate about helping empower others to break free from their limiting thoughts and beliefs to have extraordinary life experiences. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That will ensure that this podcast can reach more people. We're more powerful together, so please do share this with others. I'm always happy to engage with you, so please do reach out via social media or email if you'd like to chat. A special thank you to my very talented cousin, Galen Lee, for the intro and outro music to this show. The song is Lost in the Woods from her 2018 album, Learning How to Stay. You can find Galen's albums on Bandcamp, Spotify, and ViolinScratches.com. Until next time, make your life experience extraordinary. Let's get unchained.
Give yourself away.